0: Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? A song, a song high above the trees with a voice as big as the sea. Last week we started into this series and, and we observed together that the voice as big as the sea is the voice of God. The prophet Zephaniah wrote, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And we came to know God last week as the God who sings over us, God who takes delight in us. Hard to imagine, isn't it? that God would sing over you, delight in you, quiet you with his love, pay attention to you, have his eye on you, long for you. He will rejoice over you with singing. He is the God who sings over us. Song of Christmas, then, is a song or a part of a larger song of love that God is always singing over us. Jesus said to his friend Nicodemus, For God expressed his love for the world in this way, he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. The question we're asking in this series is, Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear the song? During my college years, I worked summers at a Christian camp that was built around one side of a small lake. And for a couple of those summers, I, I lived in an old cabin, emphasis on old, uh, built on stilts next to the lake. And at that time, the, the spring-fed lake provided the water supply for the camp itself and then for all of the private residences on the other side of the lake. And the pump that extracted the water from the lake was immediately under my cabin. It was on a timer, and every 15 minutes or so, the pump would start up. And the sound was loud. It was irritating. It was grating. It was grotesque. (laughs) And for the first couple weeks of that, First summer, I wondered if I would ever again sleep through the entire night. But then something kind of unexpected happened. Within about two weeks, my mind had completely processed out the sound. It was no longer in my consciousness. In fact, the only time I was actively Conscious of that sound was when someone else would come and visit me in the cabin and they'd hear the pump go on. They'd say, how do you sleep through that noise? And I would say, what noise? (laughs) Oh, yeah, that. You know, it's truly amazing what the mind can process out when it wants to do so. People will often say this time of year, in effect... They say it in a variety of ways, but at the core it's saying it's hard to hear the song of Christmas with all of the noise that surrounds it. And I understand that sentiment, I resonate with it, but we can learn to filter out that noise if we choose to. But here's what I've begun to wonder if whether the opposite isn't actually the problem. That is, I wonder if instead of filtering out the noise that surrounds the song of Christmas, we have in fact processed out the song itself. Because we actually prefer the noise to the song. I read this morning online that Kind of an unscientific online poll. <clears> the <throat> question was, do you think the movie Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Thousands of people responded. Two out of three said, yes, it is. I voted no. See, I think, here's what I think. I think that we actually prefer the Secular. To the sacred, we actually prefer the noise to the song. See, after all, the sacred side of Christmas is more religious, right? It's more spiritual. It's more demanding of us. It takes us to depths that we're not always comfortable with when we really take it seriously. Perhaps that's among the reasons that when it's all said and done, our family celebrations of Jesus' birth have, in fact, so very little to do with it, so very little to do with him. Today's scripture, if we will take it to heart, will shake us, I think, I think, out of lesser Preoccupations. Let's stand and read it together. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry Blessed are you among women. and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'm calling uh, verses 39 to 45 a prelude in keeping with the musical theme, but we could call it Elizabeth's song, but then I'd have to give it its own Sunday and we'd run out of Sundays. She didn't sing it anyway. You get the sense from reading the text that she was kind of blabbing it, fairly shouting it. So let's notice, first of all, what Elizabeth experienced. And by the way, uh, who is Elizabeth? Elizabeth was a relative of Mary's. Uh, we're not told the precise relationship. She's often referred to as Mary's cousin, though we don't know that. Um, but she was, uh, she was a relative. She was very old. She was advanced in years. She was well past childbearing years, and God had granted to her and her husband, Zechariah, a child in their old age. And if you read in Luke chapter 1, the early part of chapter 1, you see their story there. Uh, it's intertwined with the with the story of the birth of Jesus because their lives were intertwined. The baby that, that Elizabeth would give birth to, we've come to know as John the Baptist. But Elizabeth experienced something in this moment of Mary greeting her, arriving at her home, greeting her. First of all, she felt something. She had a sensory experience of the pregnancy kind. And in verses 41 and 44, we read these two things. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Verse 44, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, she said, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Interesting, right? Six months into her pregnancy, had never been pregnant personally, but what do you call this Braxton Hicks or you know we would give it a scientific explanation would we not Elizabeth said my the baby in my womb leapt for joy when the sound of your greeting came to my ears So Elizabeth felt something and then she was filled with someone She had a deeply spiritual experience Verse the latter part of verse forty, and Elizabeth, in that moment, was filled with the Holy Spirit. amazing, so understand what Luke is telling us when her baby leapt in her womb elizabeth was was simultaneously filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to pause here and, and offer a, a bit of a clarification the the phrase, filled with the Spirit, is often misunderstood. It's often misused, especially especially, when we read it in an Old Testament context. For a believer in Jesus today, the baptism by or into the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of our conversion when we trust in Christ. The Bible tells us we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus takes up residence in our lives He indwells us uh, as a, a permanent and abiding presence, never to leave again. And then the Holy Spirit keeps on filling us, a continual filling, enabling us to be and to do what God desires. The experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit under the old covenant was qualitatively different. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was not an abiding presence, but would occasionally, according to a specific purpose, temporarily come upon some people to enable them to do or to say specific things. We read of the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, the judges to go into battle. The Holy Spirit coming upon a prophet to prophesy. And we need to understand that though this story is recorded in in a book that appears in the New Testament, the New Covenant is not yet in effect at the time these events were occurring. The New Covenant did not come into effect until after Christ died and was raised ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. So Mary and Elizabeth were living under the old covenant, the old arrangement, if you will. The Spirit filled Elizabeth temporarily in order to enable her in this moment to prophesy. Which raises, I think, an intriguing question. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, and informed him that he and Elizabeth were to become parents in their old age, it's recorded in verse 15 that Gabriel informed him that their son John was to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And of course we know, as I mentioned, that their son John is John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who came to be the forerunner of Messiah Jesus to prepare the hearts of the people to receive him. So the intriguing question here is, was this the moment? Was this the moment when the word of the Lord, uh, word of the angel to John, or to Zechariah, rather, was fulfilled? Of course, we we can't know precisely, um, but it's possible, I think. But the moment when Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit may have been the moment when John was too. And what I think Luke meant for us to infer is at least this, that John, who came to prepare the way for Messiah Jesus, leapt in recognition that he was at that very moment in Jesus' presence. How cool is that? And I might add this. this, this came to me the other day as I was reflecting on these things, that if the, if the six-month-old baby in Elizabeth's womb, by the way, the, this, the, the baby in its, the end of its second trimester is referred to here as a baby. Just a little cultural note. If that six-month-old baby, in fact, leaps at the sound of Mary's voice in actual recognition that he is in the presence of the very recently conceived baby Jesus in Mary's womb, then it occurs to me that this moment in Scripture also provides a powerful and fruitful basis for some of our contemporary conversations about when life actually begins. As my neighbor would say when I was young, put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) So Elizabeth had an experience. And then secondly, we, we, we had to observe here what Elizabeth knew. Elizabeth knew a very a few very important things that that she could not have known unless she was informed by the Spirit of God. And first of all, let's observe that the Spirit of God gave Elizabeth knowledge of Mary's unique role in God's plan and her baby's unique identity. Notice verse... Verses 41 through 43, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, let me ask you, how did she know that? She didn't know Mary was coming. Mary just arrived. They didn't have internet, snail mail, pony express, telegraph. None of that. And yet, Elizabeth says of Mary who has just arrived and not given her any information. Elizabeth knows, blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth, how did you know that? Listen to what she says next. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth knew the unique identity of Mary's baby. Well, I could just stop right there and we could think on those things, right? How incredible is that? Next, the Spirit of God made Elizabeth aware that the Lord had spoken to Mary, that Mary had believed and submitted herself to his plan and purpose for her life. By revelation of the Spirit, Elizabeth had an inside track on not only on Mary's baby and on Mary's blessing but on Mary's faith and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord how did Elizabeth know that the Lord had spoken to Mary how did Elizabeth know what was spoken to Mary And how did Elizabeth know that Mary believed it? Only by the Spirit. Three times Elizabeth uses that word blessed. Blessed. It describes the happy situation of those whom God has shown his favor to on those on whom God has set his grace. And yet, as William Barclay so aptly noted, it is the paradox of blessedness that it confers on a person at one and the same time the greatest joy and the greatest task in the world. And such was the joy and the task of Mary. And so let's look at her song, in verses 46 to 55. And I want to just offer a couple of observations about, about Mary's song in general before we set ourselves to examine it in detail. First observation is this, that Mary's song reveals a deep spirituality and an extensive knowledge of Scripture. I don't know what you think about Mary, but there's something about Mary, Right? Most of us see her in our creches, that we, our nativity scenes that we bring out every year and set up in our homes. And she's always looking down, isn't she? She never makes eye contact with us. We don't really know Mary. In other artwork, she's got her hands folded or she's got them spread apart. We don't really know Mary. We need to know Mary. And what we find out about Mary as we read her song, and I I don't know of a passage in Scripture that tells us more about who she really was than this one. Her song is saturated with Old Testament concepts and phrases. In just ten verses, she alludes to as many as twelve different Old Testament passages. And, And yet it was Really not so unusual for a young 12 to 15-year-old Jewish girl of her time like Mary to be so familiar with God's word that it just rolled off her tongue. We often say, well, that was, that was the boys. The boys got to study God's word and the girls got to work. And <laughs> that is true to a point. But this Jewish girl, somewhere probably 12 to 15 years old, knew God's word. Christian parents, I wonder what it is that your children are putting to memory. I would venture to guess that more boys and girls in our churches today can recite the words to Disney songs. than can recite even a few lines of scripture. More of our men, I know, can recite the win-loss records of their fantasy football teams and their players and the stats on those players than, than can recite passages of God's Word from memory. And how do how do, we expect, how do how do we expect to live courageous, faithful Christian lives without a growing knowledge of God's Word? How do we expect our children to do that? And I'm sorry, I'm just the messenger, but the Bible says that's our responsibility as parents. Mary puts us all to shame in that category. Second, we might think of Mary's song as, one author put it, as the gospel before the gospel. It's a declaration of what God is about to do through his son, Israel's Messiah, which involves a number of revolutionary reversals in the status quo. And it's in this sense that her song may be taken, I think, as prophecy, at least in the broad biblical sense. Somewhere in the distant past, this Song of Mary was given the Latin title, the Magnificat. Based upon its opening line, my soul magnifies the Lord. And if If you're a Catholic or an Episcopalian, you you may have grown up reciting this song in church. Uh, If you recited it in Latin, it began, Magnificat, Anima, Mia, Dominum, if that rings a bell. You you may not have had any idea what it was that you were saying. (laughs) And if so, then this should prove to have been a good day for you because you finally get to read it in plain English. Just as an aside, looking at the word the other day, it occurred to me that the Magnificat would be a great name for a feline superhero. (laughs) But no, it's not a song about a cat in a cape. It's the Magnificat. It's Mary's song. And it is messianic to its core, and it reflects a mind and a heart that is uniquely and powerfully aligned with the mind and the heart of God, with his plans and his purposes. First of all, Mary's song is a song of salvation. It's a song of salvation. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And as I've been reflecting on the events that are described in, here in Luke 1, it, it seems to me that Mary has been, from the moment the angel appeared to her in Nazareth, connecting the dots. And it would seem that she's coming quickly to terms with her own unique role as the kingdom of heaven invades planet earth. Her song begins with an expression of praise. Her soul and her spirit get involved and she's magnifying the Lord. She's rejoicing in God even as she acknowledges her deep consciousness of dependence on him. Notice... First, that Mary calls God her Savior. And I would suggest to you what we already know, that only sinners need a Savior. By calling God her Savior, she's acknowledging her own self-understanding that she's a sinner just like everyone else. That she didn't merit this role. Buddy Green and Mark Lowry captured this so well in their song, Mary, did you know in the lines that say, Mary, did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. And the answer is yes, she knew. She knew. Her her words call to mind the words of the prophet Habakkuk who came through some significant adversity himself, and still rejoiced in God, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You might accurately think of Mary as the first Christian. Secondly, Mary's song is a song of satisfaction. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary, I think, here expresses a deep, abiding satisfaction in God. She first refers to him as the Donatos, the Mighty One. He's unparalleled, preeminent in power. This is why the angel was able to say to Mary, for nothing shall be impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is beyond his reach, beyond his capacity. He is the God of the possible impossible. And this is why Paul was able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mary declares the holiness of God. Holy is his name. The, the fundamental meaning of that word holy just, it just means different. It, it, it tells us that God is completely unlike us. He, he's completely unlike anyone else. He is incomparable. He is holy. He's high and lifted up. The Bible tells us that he dwells in ineffable light, indescribable light. His name, his person, his character is holy. There's no sin in him. He is perfectly righteous, he is the righteous judge, and because he is alone in his holiness, because he is singular in his holiness, he alone is worthy of our worship. Mary sings the mercy of the Lord in these verses. And here the word refers to God's faithfulness to all of his promises. It means, it tells us that the merciful God is the covenant-keeping God who remembers his word, who's loyal to all of his promises. And so, Mary says of him, he is feared. That is, he is loved, he's respected, he's reverenced by those who are the recipients of his mercy. Third, Mary's song is a song of subversion. Say what? Yeah. Yeah. Mary's song is a song of subversion. The tense of the verb repeated five times in verses 51 to 55, translated, he has, points to God's faithful activity in the past, but at the same time it points forward to his faithfulness in the future. We we could translate each occurrence this way, he has and he will. He has and he will. Each one points to a radical restructuring that's going to be effected when Messiah comes and establishes finally his kingdom of righteousness and justice on the earth. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You know, nearly everyone who takes the time to read and really reflect on Mary's words here in verses 51 to 53 are struck by their subversive, revolutionary tone. A famous Methodist preacher and scholar named E. Stanley Jones called Mary's song the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. William Temple, who was once the Archbishop of Canterbury, instructed missionaries who were working in poverty-stricken parts of India never to read the words of this song in public because it could incite riots in the streets. Scott McKnight, a contemporary university professor and author, wrote this. He said, if we... Read the Magnificat as the heartfelt release of a woman yearning for what God was finally about to do in Israel, and in historical context, we see it as a call to subvert unjust leaders. To turn this song into simple spirituality strips it of its meaning and leaves injustices personified by Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great on the throne. Scottish theologian William Barclay reviewed Mary's declarations offered this analysis. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's a moral revolution. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's a social revolution. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's an economic revolution. This section of Mary's song tells of a complete reversal of human attitudes, of human values, of societal structures. Neither the proud nor the mighty nor the rich get to have the last word. In fact, through his Messiah, God is about to overthrow all of them God is going to turn the world upside down. That's why some people have referred to the kingdom of God as the upside down kingdom. It it just defies human norms. And as we're getting to know the real Mary, we, we need to ask, what kind of woman sings this kind of song during the reign of those kinds of rulers who sat on the thrones that dominated Israel, rulers like Caesar Augustus and King Herod. Tyrants, despots. Julius Caesar once said, or Augustus Caesar rather, once said regarding Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because Herod was always putting to death his family members because he was so fearful. It helps us understand his interaction with the Magi when he said, go and find him and come and tell me where he is so I can worship him. What kind of woman was Mary? She was a fierce woman. The kind of woman that sings this kind of song is a fierce Israelite woman, a woman of deep faith. The kind of woman that sings this kind of song is the woman that God chose to be the mother of his son Jesus. Finally, Mary's song is a song of certainty. It's a song of certainty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, Mary's been recalling all of God's promises to Israel, as she's been taught them. She recalls God's covenant with Abraham, that in Abraham's seed, singular, not seeds, but seed, one specific descendant of Abraham, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Blessed. She recalls God's covenant with David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and reign over the house of David forever. So much more. Mary is asserting that in the present moment, as God has caused her son, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the son of David, the Messiah of Israel to be conceived in her womb, he is doing something completely new. And yet that something completely new is precisely what God had been promising from of old. What God had been promising all along that he would one day bring to pass in the person of the baby in her womb. It's a song of certainty because Mary understood that God was a promise-keeping God, covenant-keeping God, a faithful God who never fails to keep his promises. There's one final verse here in this passage, and I'm just going to call it the postlude. And Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. we do the math here, when Mary arrived, Elizabeth was in the sixth month of her pregnancy. So Mary, having been with her for three months, must have been with her up until just days before Elizabeth gave birth to John. And then pregnant Mary went back home, back to Nazareth, back to face Joseph. Back to endure the social scorn that was the consequence of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy. Back to humiliated, confused, wounded, probably angry parents and family. But also back to continue obediently singing her song to marry Joseph, journey to Bethlehem, to bring forth her firstborn son and to name him Jesus, for it was he who would save his people from their sins. Do you hear the song? Are you dialing in? See, if we hear this song, we will do a few things. If we hear the song, we will make ourselves available to God for his purposes. If we hear the song, we're, we will marvel at what he's doing through the incarnation of his son, which is the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas is not discounts at Macy's. The wonder of Christmas is that God was becoming flesh in the person of his son, Jesus. And if we hear the song, we will worship as Mary and Elizabeth did with great passion and great joy. Let's pray. Lord, what a woman you chose! To be the mother of your son Jesus. What grace you poured out on her, what blessing. What joy she shared with Elizabeth. Lord, would you, in the busyness of these weeks of our lives, that we have Willingly and unwillingly. Cluttered with so many other things. So much noise. Lord, through the noise. Would you speak. Would you instill within us once again the wonder. That you. And your kingdom invaded the kingdoms of earth to rescue us from our darkness, from our sin. Let the song of Christmas be for us a song of salvation. And we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.